As the 1960 election drew near, combat on the campaign field grew fierce. Vice President Richard M. Nixon and Senator John F. Kennedy prepared to joust in a series of debates, vying for the voting public's favor, each striving to serve as the next leader of the free world. The first debate was held on a Monday night in Chicago. On September 26, 1960, at CBS television station WBBM. A major concern at the time was what role television would play in modern American politics. The New York Times suggested that in the past the medium had injected, quote, too much show business into areas where it's not appropriate, end quote. Many wondered how live pictures would affect the substantive discussions in the minds of the electorate. But the proposal to hold televised debates between presidential candidates originally put forth by Senator Blair Moody had already been accepted. The candidates and broadcasters had already negotiated. The networks initially offered many hours of programming by which they would retain a good deal of editorial control over the content. After some give and take, a suitable debate format was settled upon. The Nixon camp then worked to reduce the number of debates, while Kennedy negotiators fought for a higher number of televised meetings, hoping to capitalize on their candidates' good looks. Having spent time in the campaign trail in the California sunshine, had not heard the appearance of the young senator. The agreed-upon format would be a series of four debates, the first and fourth allotting time for opening and closing statements. The first debate would focus on domestic issues, the fourth on foreign policy. The two intermediate debates would consist of topics suggested by the panel of journalists. In late August, while campaigning in Greensboro, North Carolina, the vice president struck his kneecap hard against a car door. The resulting injury led to an infection so severe it left Nixon hospitalized in traction, costing him two weeks on the campaign trail. Then he caught the flu. The immobilized candidate was so anxious to make up for lost time that he stepped up the pace of his campaign. Over the next weeks, Mr. Nixon lost several pounds. On the day of the first debate, Kennedy met with his advisors for a rehearsal session of questions and answers. After the session, Kennedy took a nap in his hotel. The final prep session took place in his hotel room, his team quizzing him as he reclined in bed. Nixon flew into Chicago late the night before the first debate, then spoke to a hostile union audience in the morning. He spent most of the remainder of the day alone or with his wife, Pat. A series of last-minute advisory calls came in, giving the candidate conflicting strategic advice. Then as he arrived at the CBS studio before the debate, the vice president again struck his injured knee. Witnesses looked on as the color drained from Nixon's face. Any effect the trauma may have contributed to the vice president's pallor only worked against him, as neither the panelists nor the television audience were apprised of the injury. Having arrived an hour before airtime, the vice president was greeted by a receiving line of network executives. He then entered the studio with his press secretary, Herbert G. Klein. Senator Kennedy arrived several minutes later, and the adversary shook hands. Inside the studio, the wan vice president, like the tan senator, refused makeup, opting to apply only a small amount of lazy shave to cover his afternoon beard. The vice president wore a light blue-gray suit, a pale shirt, and a blue tie. 
Senator Kennedy wore a dark, single-breasted suit. Before the debate began, a producer noticed that Kennedy's white shirt was giving off a glare on television monitors. Hearing the comment, the senator sent an aide back to the hotel to pick up a blue shirt. After the senator made the quick alteration, the two candidates waited the last long moments before the historic broadcast would begin. The four panelists for the first debate were Robert Fleming of ABC, Charles Warren of the Mutual Broadcasting System, Stuart Novins of CBS, and me, Sandra Van Oker of NBC. Moderator Howard K. Smith of CBS opened the landmark first Nixon-Kennedy debate. Here now is the first of the Nixon-Kennedy debates. The Mutual Broadcasting System and its affiliated radio stations from coast to coast wish to thank the sponsors of Mutual Network programs and the sponsors of local programs, which are canceled tonight, so that we might bring you the following special program. Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. The candidates need no introduction. The Republican candidate, Vice President Richard M. Nixon, and the Democratic candidate, Senator John F. Kennedy. According to rules set by the candidates themselves, each man shall make an opening statement of approximately eight minutes duration and a closing statement of approximately three minutes duration. In between, the candidates will answer or comment upon answers to questions put by a panel of correspondents. In this, the first discussion in a series of four joint appearances, the subject matter has been agreed will be restricted to internal or domestic American matters. And now for the first opening statement by Senator John F. Kennedy. Mr. Smith, Mr. Nixon. In the election of 1860, Abraham Lincoln said the question was whether this nation could exist half slave or half free. In the election of 1960 and with the world around us, the question is whether the world will exist half slave or half free whether it will move in the direction of freedom, in the direction of the road that we are taking, or whether it will move in the direction of slavery. I think it will depend in great measure upon what we do here in the United States, on the kind of society that we build, on the kind of strength that we maintain. We discuss tonight domestic issues, but I would not want that to be any implication to be given that this does not involve directly our struggle with Mr. Khrushchev for survival. Mr. Khrushchev is in New York, and he maintains the communist offensive throughout the world because of the productive power of the Soviet Union itself. The Chinese communists have always had a large population, but they are important and dangerous now because they are mounting a major effort within their own country. The kind of country we have here, the kind of society we have, the kind of strength we build in the United States will be the defense of freedom. If we do well here, if we meet our obligations, if we're moving ahead, then I think freedom will be secure around the world. If we fail, then freedom fails. Therefore, I think the question before the American people is, are we doing as much as we can do? Are we as strong as we should be? Are we as strong as we must be if we're going to maintain our independence? And if we're going to maintain and hold out the hand of friendship 
to those who look to us for assistance, to those who look to us for survival. I should make it very clear that I do not think we're doing enough, that I am not satisfied as an American with the progress that we are making. This is a great country, but I think it could be a greater country. And this is a powerful country, but I think it could be a more powerful country. I'm not satisfied to have 50% of our steel mill capacity unused. I'm not satisfied when the United States had last year the lowest rate of economic growth of any major industrialized society in the world. Because economic growth means strength and vitality. It means we're able to sustain our defenses. It means we're able to meet our commitments abroad. I'm not satisfied when we have over $9 billion worth of food, some of it rotting, even though there is a hungry world, and even though 4 million Americans wait every month for a food package from the government, which averages 5 cents a day per individual. I saw cases in West Virginia, here in the United States, where children took home part of their school lunch in order to feed their families because I don't think we're meeting our obligations towards these Americans. I'm not satisfied when the Soviet Union is turning out twice as many scientists and engineers as we are. I'm not satisfied when many of our teachers are inadequately paid or when our children go to school part-time shifts. I think we should have an educational system second to none. I'm not satisfied when I see men like Jimmy Hoffa in charge of the largest union in the United States still free. I'm not satisfied when we are failing to develop the natural resources of the United States to the fullest. Here in the United States, which developed the Tennessee Valley,